0: a proclamation of his word thank you jesus amen amen that we can proclaim god the father god the son and god the holy spirit that dwells within us isn't that amazing his word his character that we can partake of that of his divine nature the word tells us we can be partakers of that oh thank you jesus so we can proclaim that free and loud this morning without restraints our meditation is taken from psalms 119 which uh, we're still doing psalms 119 is so long it has like 26 stanzas in it and so our verses this morning will be from 113 to 120 and it says i hate double-minded people but i love your law You are my refuge and my shield. I have put my hope in your word. Away from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commands of my God. Sustain me, my God, according to your promise, and I will live. Do not let my hopes be dashed. Uphold me, and I will be delivered, and I will always have regard for your decrees. You reject all who stray from your commandments, for their delusions, come to nothing. All the wicked of the earth you discard. Therefore, I love your statutes. My flesh trembles in fear, in reverence of you. I stand in awe of your ways. You know, verse uh, 114 states, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. The God that the psalmist knew so well through his words, became a refuge in troubled times. The hope he had in the word of God was not initiated by mere academics or intellectual knowledge. It was founded on a relationship with God himself. He walked with God. This writer wanted to step away from the uncertain and uncommitted people. His focus was in the law of love, living by the law of love, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's what brings hope. The writer found sustenance for life, counsel through the word of God, and he stood in awe. Of God and is calling us to do that today. When we have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ and we walk with him, that's what changes us. Following a religion is not going to change anybody, is it? We might do some really good things, some good works, but following a lit religion will not draw us to the person of God through Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit that lives and dwells within us. What a testimony to sing that today. I believe in God the Father. I believe in his son, Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit that draws me to Jesus, the sanctification of who I am. I've made a whole lot of mistakes. I've sinned a whole lot. Oh, but by his grace. Oh, but by his grace we come. By his mercy. Father, we just stand in your presence this morning. We are so grateful, Lord Jesus, that you see us through and through. We're not hiding anything from you. But you love us anyway. You see All our ways, Lord. And that sometimes we try so hard and we don't just lay it down at your feet. We don't just come to you. Sometimes we just try to work our way to you. But today we lay this at your feet, Lord. Our lives are held within your hands. Lord God, we love you today. We want to be overflowing, Lord, with your love. We want to be overflowing, Lord Jesus, with your kindness, with the law of love upon our hearts, Lord. We thank you, Father, for your presence. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we worship you today and we come before
1: you. I want you to know it's a long-established tradition in the pastoral craft to occasionally say things that are incorrect, to get people to pay attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You pay attention, waiting for the next mistake he makes. Fine, be that way. All right, open your Bibles, if you would. Mark chapter 12. Uh, We're returning this morning to the place that uh, Pastor Scott left off, Cantrice, a couple weeks ago. If you recall, last week, we kind of jumped ahead a little bit. We're continuing in this final interaction between Jesus and the religious authorities. We started several weeks back with uh, Jesus having a a confrontation. It was was definitely not, not a polite thing. Confrontation with the chief priests, the scribes, the elders... And they're questioning Jesus' authority to act because he had cleansed the temple. And then the, uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians came and they were questioning the poll tax, the lawfulness of the poll tax. And then the Sadducees came and they were questioning the resurrection. Uh, each one of those groups trying to trip Jesus up, they all came with an agenda. Uh, they wanted to get rid of him. They wanted to eliminate him. And they were either going to do it by getting him to say something that would alienate the crowds and then they could, you know, like, you know, Eliminate him without fearing the crowds or get him to say something that would make the Romans mad and then they would come and solve the problem for him. So the, all of this is, uh, these are all agenda driven conversations attempting to get rid of Jesus. and But they failed. And they failed so badly they were literally humiliated in the process. Well, this last interaction is definitely different. It's a question like the others had asked, but it's a different kind of a question. It, it has more of an honest question sense about it. Um, now, interestingly, when Matthew records this event, he moves it more to the other category. Matthew's terminology in Matthew 22 makes it more of a testing, right? Not all the way over there as, you know, as far as setting a trap for him, but definitely a test. But Mark presents this in a, in a more positive light. This scribe, this, law, this legal lawyer, asks a genuine question now before we get to that though i need to make a couple of comments about last week last week we talked about universalism this idea that you know nobody goes to hell permanently right that everybody sooner or later i mean if, if you've rejected christ in this life for not accepted him you go to a bad place but that's temporary you're only there long enough to figure out you were wrong and change your thinking right and then everybody eventually including the devil himself. Uh, ends up in a good place. That's universalism. We talked about that. Uh, And it's based on passages like Acts chapter 3 that talk about the restoration of all things. Ephesians chapter 1, the summation of all things. A lot of weight hangs on that phrase, the summation of all things. Well, I had some great discussions afterwards. I really enjoyed them. And one of the questions I was asked was, why didn't you, that being me, why didn't you give more scriptures in response? Why didn't you give us The scriptures in response. Well, there was a reason for that, Um, kind of just born out of my personal experience. You know, when we're challenged or we're questioned in what we believe, those challenges or those questions normally come from two places. Either people that don't know what the Bible says, or they know what the Bible says, but we disagree about what it means. Well, when the que- the problem is people don't know what the Bible says, you know, some person you meet at work, and they just really don't know what the Bible says. Then the the answer is obviously. Tell them what the Bible says. But I have found in my own personal just experience that when I'm dealing with somebody who knows what the Bible says, and then w- the disagreement or the tension or the problem, or whatever, is in what it means. There's not a lot of resolution by just. You know, them throwing their verses and I throw verses back. It kind of turns into this, like, Old West shootout thing. You know, you got your verses and I got mine. And whoever runs out of verses first loses or something like Some rule like that. I'm really not sure. I don't find that productive. When I'm dealing with someone who's, the, the, the disagreement is about what the text means, I would much rather, like, just slow things down and let's talk about the way the verses are being understood. And that does a couple of different things. It, it it tells a person that I'm actually listening to them. I don't know if you ever noticed those conversations that are dueling verses. You get the feeling that neither side's really listening to the other side. They got their pre-established list, and they're going for, no, slow it down, listen, and say, let's talk about how you understand or the assumptions you're making or the way you're interpreting those verses. It's a little more complicated, but I find it to be a whole lot more profitable, right? Last week, I mentioned the argument of convenience. When somebody is using an argument of convenience, let's point it out, right? Um, we talked about responding rationally, using irrational faculties. And so that, that's why I didn't go that direction last week of just quoting more verses, but trying to talk about what the Bible means rather than just what it says. And that really lays, I think, a groundwork into what we're looking at today, because that's the kind of question we're looking at. Somebody asks a question, and the answer isn't simply to throw verses back, but to respond rationally. And by the way, even for us, as we deal with this, it's tempting to say that's a byproduct of the day and age in which we live. It's really not. It's been going on for a long time. Back in 1521, the church had a very large dispute on their hands, and it was based on what? The words meant. Martin Luther had said that faith or salvation would come by faith and faith alone, and the church, well, they weren't on the page with that. And Martin Luther said that faith was understood through Scripture and Scripture alone, and the church wasn't on the same page as that. And rather than just throwing verses back at them, Luther famously said, Unless I am convinced by Scripture and rational thinking. His exact words were, Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, my conscience being captive to the word, I cannot and will not recant anything I've said. Now, when he said that, scripture and sound reason, he wasn't equating them. He wasn't saying you got scripture and you've got sound reason and they're equal. No, what he was saying was we have scripture and we understand it through reason, through the faculties he has given us. So when the question is, what does the text mean? Those are the standards by which I believe we should respond. We need to know what... If you don't know what it says, you need to find out what it says. We need to know the Word of God. But once we've established what it says and we're struggling to determine what it means, we need to use the faculties that he's given us. And that, again, sets the text, or sets a framework for our text this morning. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. One of the scribes came, heard them arguing, and recognizing that he, that is Jesus, had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is foremost of all? Jesus answered and said, the foremost is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one. There is no one else beside him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as himself, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Father, we thank you for your word. Ask, Father, that we might hear, understand, and be equipped, Father, to live our faith in the day and age in which we live. Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus is again asked the question. It's an incredibly simple question. Um, one could say it's shockingly simple. I mean, if, if, um, if I were to try to put this in, in a different setting, um, you know, imagine yourself attending a, a conference. The keynote speaker of which was a Nobel-winning mathematician, right? And you go to listen to this Nobel-winning mathematician, and at the end of the at the end of the the, the conference, there's a Q&A session, and a bunch of other really brilliant mathematicians are asking questions of this brilliant Nobel Prize-winning mathematician. You know how that works, right? The people asking the questions try to word their questions to make themselves look as intelligent as the guy they're asking. You know how that works, right? And so they they got all these really convoluted, difficult questions, and every time they bring one up, he not only answers it in just by just you know. Simply and directly, he illustrates to everybody else how really dumb the question was, right? And they go through several of those. And then at the very end, he got room for one more question. And this young student, mathematician in the back, stands up, says, I have have a question for you. What's 1 plus 1? And there's a gasp in the crowd, like, what an idiot. I mean, this guy's like a Nobel-winning prize mathematician. You ask him what 1 plus 1 is, and you're just holding your breath, knowing that he's going to totally shut this clown down, right? And the speaker's face just brightens. And they begin to interact on the question of what is 1 plus 1? And when they're all done and they're back and forth, the speaker says, thank you for that exceptionally insightful question. And you're left thinking, what did I just miss? Right? Am I in the same room with everybody else? Or maybe there's more to one plus one than I realized? That's kind of what we've got going on here. Because when Jesus asked the scribe, what is the greatest commandment? He is asking Jesus, the rabbi, that has just confounded all these religious types. He's asking him a question that literally everybody in the crowd above the age of 10 already knew. The Shema, hear O Israel. Shema means hear. Hear O Israel, the Lord our God is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. Every Jew recited that twice a day. This is like a question from Shema School 101. Everybody's got the answer. So what is the dynamic in this question? I'm sure they fully expected Jesus to shut this guy down. Instead, he praises, and in verse 34, tells the man, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Nobody else got that from Jesus. So what's the deal with this question? Okay, what's going on? Let's talk about the text first, look carefully at it, identify the questions, then to consider their importance, and finally ask how they speak to us. First of all, what exactly happens here? Of course, a scribe appears, he's a religious lawyer, he's not acting as part of a group, and he doesn't have an agenda, unlike all the questioners he's simply asking jesus a question based on what he has seen and heard he says he approaches jesus he stepped forward from the crowd the guy's got guts and he asked him this question which commandment is foremost now it wasn't completely universally agreed on there was for example a rabbi in the second century that said proverbs 3 6 and all your ways acknowledge him and he will guide your path." A few had disagreements, but other than that, it was pretty well, again, a universal, the Shema. There was some question about the second part of the answer, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Even that was completely resolved by Jesus' day, though. Rabbi Hillel, who lived just before Jesus, had pretty much given the final word on that when he told the story, it's recorded in the Mishnah, when he told the story of a a potential convert to Judaism who approached a rabbi and said, I will convert to Judaism if you can recite the entire Torah while standing on one foot. Meaning, give me a short version, right? Well, short enough for you to do it standing on one foot. And Rabbi Hillel told the story of the rabbi who said... That which is hateful to you, do not do that to your neighbor. That is the law, that is the Torah, the rest is commentary. So even that, had pretty well, when resolved, those two pieces went together. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your might, your neighbor as himself. Right? The expression, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one. Every Jew, as I said, twice, said it twice daily. Now, some have noted in the conversation between Jesus and this and this scribe the difference in the terminology for heart and soul and mind and strength that are that are used. That's pretty well explained, not by some theological difference, but by the mere fact. It's found in different places in the Old Testament, both Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It also highlights a difference that we sometimes forget, is that there's an all likelihood, this is a discussion that is moving between Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. All three languages were extremely common, and we find records in all three languages. So there may have been linguistic differences, there may have been definitions, but the same point is being made. It's one loving God, holy and completely. Jesus continued in his answer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And then Jesus goes back to Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. The scribe responds in verse 32, you are correct. He responds to Shema back. He uses the Deuteronomy format. Then the described continues by quoting 1 Samuel 15. This is verse 33 of our text. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrificing as in obeying the Lord our God? Most of you know the story. Saul had been sent out to take vengeance on the enemies of God and then told to wipe everything out. Saul kept a lot of the cattle back. and, And when the prophet Samuel came to him, he said, what's the deal? You were told to destroy everything. I hear sheep. What's going on? And Saul gave him the excuse that I saved them to make sacrifice. And Samuel said, which is more important, making sacrifice or obeying the voice of God? Powerful lesson for us to be mindful. You know, we're in, we're in the period of Lent. Um, some of you may be giving up things for Lent as you prepare your heart to worship. And as we worship the resurrection... But so much more important than what we may or may choose to give up is to walk in simple obedience to what he's called us. If you can give something up, that's great. If that helps you focus your prayer, if that helps you focus in your reading, if it helps you say it, that's great. But what is truly important is walking in simple obedience to what God has said. I've heard people say, um, I'm giving up something for Lent and somebody will say, well actually that's a sin. You really can't give up a sin for Lent, right? And I always think, well, does that mean you keep sinning during Lent while you give up something else? No, no. Don't make any more out of it than it should be. We need to do what we need to do to obey his word. It's as simple as that, right? So Jesus and the, the, and, and the scribe, they're on the same page, they both know the answer to the question, what is the greatest commandment? We must love him wholly with our whole being. And because he is one, here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, because he is one, he must be loved wholly. Now here, I'm, I'm just going to warn you, I'm going to get way outside of my field of expertise. I'm just going to give you a few tidbits. You can Do the research yourself or you can find somebody smart enough to explain it to you. There's a connection between the idea of God being one and the necessity of our worshiping him wholly with an undivided heart. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but there's a connection. The, The number one is an integer. Here's where I'm really thin ice. Number one is an integer. It's a whole number. You cannot divide it and still have an integer, right? Number two is also an integer, but you can divide it and still have an integer. You can have two ones. Number one is unique as an integer. It cannot be divided and still have a whole number that makes it an integer. The connection between the word integer and the word integrity. They are grammatically linked. We have integrity when we act as a whole person, everything being being consistent with who we are. When our behavior and our value system are out of sync, we're not acting with integrity. We're no longer whole. I'm not going to go any farther than that because I'm probably already in enough trouble. Math was not my strong point. But you get the point. There's a connection between God being one and our having to worship Him with our whole being or our worship is is not legitimate. Now, I'm not saying that we don't try. I'm not saying, well, you know, I got issues going on. I'm not going to worship God. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying our goal should always bring to bring the whole of our character, and only the Holy Spirit can do that for us. But our goal should always bring the whole of our character into alignment with the person and character of God as he reveals himself in his word. And if we're not there yet to make that our f- our focus on our purpose, and not to fool ourselves to thinking we can, we can compartmentalize life. Well, this part of my life is aligned with God and this part over here is not. And that's okay. No, it's not okay. Hence the Shema. He is one. Love the Lord your God, the Lord our God, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might. So Jesus and, and the scribe, they go back and forth based on this question. You know, the basic question that the, the scribe is asking is this. How can one plus one still equal one? Because he's heard Jesus' affirmations of his deity. I and the Father are one, right? Before Abraham was, I am. That's what he's asking. He's asking me to explain your math there, Jesus. How does one plus one equal one? But they're on the same page. They're moving in the same direction. And so Jesus says something extraordinary in verse 34. Mark notes that Jesus observed the scribe's answer was intelligent. Some translations say uh, discerning, other translations. The word is completely unique. It's only used this place in scripture. The word is nun echos. Nun echos. And it literally, I love this word. It literally means a brain having. Yeah, right. This is the only guy in the New Testament other than Jesus who doesn't you know fall into the scarecrow category, right? Oh, I fell flat, I'm sorry. If I only had a brain, right? Okay, sorry I had to explain that. This guy's got one. So what Jesus is saying in the entire, in the, before this entire group of people, here's a guy, one guy with a functional brain. He's asking me an intelligent question. And he understands my answer, and they go back and forth. What's happening here? What's the real significance of this question? Actually, the real significance of the question comes in what Jesus says next. It says in verse 35, and so there's a connection there, right? I know it's a new paragraph, but it's a connection. And Jesus answering, another connection. Jesus answering was saying, beware of the... I'm sorry. Jesus answering began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now remember, what had the first three groups been doing? They'd been trying to ask Jesus questions he couldn't answer. Either they were too difficult, like the Sadducees, the question of the seven brothers that had one wife, and when they got to heaven, his wife. How do you answer that, right? They were either answering questions he couldn't answer, Or they were asking questions like should we pay taxes to Caesar or not that would get him in trouble either way he answered. So they've been trying to ask him questions he can't answer, right? Now Jesus is responding in kind and he says to them because the whole issue is Jesus referring to himself as God. I am the father or one. Before Abraham was I am. Jesus making it very clear that he's God. How do you you reconcile that with the Lord our God being one? So Jesus says this um, how is it now the scribes say the Christ is the son of David. David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies to be beneath your feet. Wait a minute. So, you guys, you brilliant... I'm not, not pointing at you. I'm like Jesus pointing at the crowd, okay? You guys, you, all you scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and everybody else out there, you're, you believe that, that the Bible is, is right. How is it then that David says to the Messiah... Right? Who is the who is the son of God? How is that you say to him, The Lord said to my Lord? So if he's my Lord, he's over you, but he's after you, because the Messiah has to come after. And of course, they have absolutely no answer for that. They can't handle Jesus' math at all. The point of the scribes' question was that Jesus' claimed to be the Son of God had violated every understanding they heard they had of what it was for God to be one. And yet the truth of the rest of Jesus' teaching affirmed that he in fact was the Messiah. They could not reconcile what they heard coming from Jesus' lips, and so they rejected it. The scribe shows the wisdom of saying, I can't reconcile it, but I'll accept it until I can. You claim to be the son of God, yet you affirm the Shema that God is one. Please tell me how that works. That's the scribe's position. Tell me, Rabbi, how does one plus one equal one? That's the rabbi's position. He doesn't have that answer, but that's okay. And that's the key. That's where the real treasure of this verse is for us, when we don't have the key. When we stand there like this like this scribe saying, I don't fully understand everything, but I understand who you are. And that's a good place for me to start. How do we approach a situation when we simply don't understand it? How do we, what do we do when we encounter a situation that certainly doesn't make sense? Not according to what we understand of our God. You know, these things kind of fall into two categories. You know, some are, are theoretical. I mean, I don't know how many of you every day struggle with the idea of God being three but one. Let's face it, not too many of us spend a whole lot of time struggling with that theological reality. That's kind of a theoretical problem for most of us, the whole idea of the Trinity being three but one. On the other hand, when we have a sick child, and we're praying for that child, and nothing's getting better, that's not theoretical. Or we have a real crisis in a family and we're, and we're crying out to God for that crisis and a loved one is, is doing what they shouldn't be doing and they're heading in a really bad direct direction and we're praying for them, God, please turn them around and they're not. That's not theoretical. That is when the difference between what we understand of God and what we think of God and what we're seeing in the real life, that's when that really comes into focus and what do we do when we're faced with a situation like that? What do we do when it just does not add up? We can, like the other groups, again, all the other religious experts, we can simply say, well, God, I guess you're not who I thought you said you were. Your claims don't add up, and so I reject you. Or we can do what this scribe does. The scribe is the genius. He cannot reconcile what Jesus is saying with what he knows God to be. So what does he do? He backs up. Let's start at ground zero. What is the greatest commandment? What is the most basic commandment? When we encounter circumstances in our lives that simply cannot be resolved by anything I can come up with, I stop and I back up and I ask the question, who is my God? Who is my God? What do I know of my God, both through his word and through my experience? Because that will always point to one thing, his faithfulness. What I know of my God will always point to his faithfulness. And when the scribe backs up and he says, okay, Lord, you're telling me that you're basically God because you said, you know, before Abraham was, I am, I understand that. That means you're God, but God's one, now I got two. Help me to understand this. He backs up and he asks Jesus to affirm one thing for him. Is it true the Lord God is one? And Jesus says, that's right. The Lord our God is one. He affirms what he already knows. He establishes what is most important at the most basic level, and then he moves forward from there. And that's what we have to do. When our faith is challenged when our understanding is challenged and we don't have a good answer, back up to the most essential questions, who is my God? Who has he shown himself to be in my life? And I establish that and I move forward from that, even when things don't make sense. This is how we respond when things don't add up. We go back to the basics, or as I have often said, we follow the last order given. The last thing I knew, he said to me. As A really really good example that I'll I'll close with this, and I've I've talked about this this fellow before, his name is Charles Albert Tinney. He was born in 1851, African American. His father was a slave, his mother was free. So under the laws of Maryland where he was born, he was technically free. His mother, however, passed away when he was very, very small. His family, his extended family, his mother's family, could not afford to take him in. They didn't have the resources. But if he remained with his father, he would revert to the status of a slave. And the family wanted to stop that from happening. So his aunt, his mother's sister, agreed to take him into their home even though they did not have the resources for him. He lived most of his early life in serious want. As soon as he was physically able to work, he had to work. One of his first jobs was carrying loads of bricks, even as a small boy, carrying loads of bricks on a work site. Eventually, he worked his way up to a position of a janitor at a local Methodist church. At the time Charles Albert Tenney was hired as a janitor, attendance of the church was just under 200. Charles Albert Tenney never went to school. He had no formal education. But he taught himself to read and write English, Hebrew, and Greek. I have no idea how he do that. But he did. He eventually became the pastor of that church. And when he concluded his term as pastor of that church, its congregation was an interracial 10,000. He wrote a lot of stuff that was popular and well-known, but he also wrote this. You know, it's funny how sometimes we mock those old hymns because they sound kind of, you know, oldy to us until we understand where they come from. <laughs> We're often tossed and driven on the reckless sea of time. Somber skies and howling tempest oft succeed in bright sunshine. In that land of perfect day when the mists have rolled away, We'll understand it better by and by. By and by, when the morning comes, when all the saints of God are gathered home, we'll tell the story of how we've overcome. For we'll understand it better by and by. I so look forward to that time when all my questions have answers. Won't that be glorious? But you know what's going to be even better? You know what's gonna be even better than having all of my questions answered? Is the fact that I make it without having all my questions answered. That's faith. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, thank you for this incredible encounter between Jesus and this one lone scribe. And I think about the courage this guy had to step out from the crowd and ask ask Jesus a question like this, which seems so incredibly rudimentary to our minds. Father, I think there's a lesson for us is that when things get really bad, maybe we need to go back to the rudimentary questions and remind ourselves exactly who our God has shown himself to be. Father, give us the wisdom to do that. Help us remember to do that. We know that this life will challenge us. Many even I know this morning are dealing with really really hard things. We have a promise that one day we'll understand all things perfectly. Help us this day to act on the things we do understand so that we will be able to say we'll understand it better by and by. Help us to that and we pray. Let that be our testimony to those around us, Lord. Our faith, our confidence, our overcoming even in the face of trial. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and worship the Lord this morning.